Hey, who's, who's familiar with the TV show that began a TV series in 2010 called Undercover Boss? Undercover Boss, you've seen the show? It's a show basically where, you know, the boss in a certain company goes, puts on a disguise and goes undercover within their own company to kind of get a sense of how things really are at the coalface, so to speak. You know, like kind of on the, on the ground level, you know, where, where people are experiencing the real things. And so they get to, you know, experience what they're colleagues, really employees, you know, uh, are experiencing. And often by the end of the show, they end up instituting a whole bunch of policy changes to make life better for their employees and hand out a few bonuses. And it's this lovely kind of, you know, amazing thing. But I can't help but think about Undercover Boss as we come to our scripture reading for this morning, as we come to our text in Luke chapter 24. It's a bit of an Undercover Boss moment, I think, in some respects. Uh, So we're going to read, Zaya let us off reading from the the beginning of uh, Luke 24 at the call to worship where we talked, where we read about the empty tomb. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 13. This is the story on the Emmaus Road. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, get this, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had what? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came, told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, and may God add His blessing to His Word this morning. I love it, eh? Jesus shows up, uh, but he's, he's not like in disguise, like He's put on a costume, like an undercover boss, but He is kind of like an undercover boss, because they don't recognize Him. 
right? He shows up alongside them on the road, journeying to Emmaus, and they don't rec- like, 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 think about that for a minute. Does that strike anyone else as odd? They don't reckon, like, these are, these are his followers. They've been following him around for some time. They, they said in their testimony about him, he amazed us with all that he said and all that he did and, you know, who he was. Surely they knew what he looked like, right? So for them to not recognize him must mean that maybe he looks a bit different. See, Jesus is now in his resurrected body. It's still a human body, but it's part of the new creation. It's the the beginning, in a lot of ways, of the new creation. His resurrected body is human, but it's not the same. This is huge, right? This should should kind of stun us and shock us. This is a pretty big deal. So much so that they don't even see it. So Jesus shows up in this kind of undercover boss moment and tries to, it's almost like he's scoping out and trying to get a sense of what's the state of play? What are people actually seeing? How are they actually responding to all that's just happened? This is the moment, Jesus is thinking, and how are people engaging with it? Oh, and these two are just off on a trot down to Emmaus. They're leaving, why would they be leaving Jerusalem? You know, this is crazy, Right? And Cleopas is, is one, and, and, and another person journeying with Cleopas on the road down to Emmaus, and some suggest that maybe it was, just, it was, it was likely just his wife. We don't know for sure who the, other per- the second person was, um, but it was likely either his wife or another one of Jesus' followers. They're going down, and they, they, they tell, it tells us in the story that they were experiencing a bit of disappointment and confusion. They were feeling disappointed and confused. They were disappointed because they were expecting the Messiah to show up. I mean, they said it themselves. Like, we, we had seen him do all these amazing things, and he'd said all these amazing things. We, we, we had hoped, they said. Remember when I had you repeat? We had hoped that he was the one we were waiting for. We, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. And by saying that, they were expecting that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman occupation so that Israel might be left alone to live in peace and holiness and just enjoy life to themselves, right? Which is why in their minds the crucifixion was just so devastating and disappointing because it wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes, but he was now dead and gone. It was, it was more than that. I think it was deeper than that in a lot of ways because if Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, then he should have been defeating the Romans, right? Not dying at their hands. And so Cleopas's puzzled statement in the text here really only needs the slightest twist to correct it and bring it around to the truth, doesn't it? Where he says, they crucified him, but we had hoped he would redeem Israel. The slight twist on that? They crucified him, and that was how he has redeemed Israel. Just the slightest little twist and all of a sudden we're speaking the truth of the gospel and of course we're speaking of resurrection hope because the resurrection is the key thing that makes the biggest difference here. Disappointed but they were also confused because they said, hey, a a number of our women went out and they they, they went to go, they took the spices and they took all the things to kind of care for Jesus' body and do the burial things that they need to do to preserve the body and do the things And, uh, and they went down there and the stone was rolled away. And so they went inside and they found... The body wasn't in the tomb. He wasn't there. It was, it was empty. It was gone. And, and so these women who witnessed the empty tomb was then confirmed by a few of the disciples who raced down later to just go, just go verify, you know, in case the lady's making up a bit of a story. Um, and they go verify and they realize, no, 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 it's true. This is for real. And so they left 
absolutely confused. Not only has Jesus died and been buried, but now he's just gone. He's just vanished, disappeared. Little do they know that here he is, undercover boss style, walking alongside them on the road to Emmaus, having this conversation with them. And in verse 27, I love it. He says, and beginning with the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures, he explained the Scriptures to them, how all the way through God's Word, it had been pointing to this moment, this truth of who Jesus was. It had been pointing to the resurrection that all the way through, Jesus began explaining the Scriptures. It says, you know, from Moses and the prophets. Moses meaning, you know, the, the, the books of Moses, the, the law of Moses, the first five books, the Torah, and kind of journeying on through then the, the prophets. And the, so basically they're talking about the Hebrew Scriptures because the New Testament hadn't been written by this point, right? So they're, they're talking about the, the, the Old Testament. And throughout this conversation, there's this dawning uh, realization of the truth of who Jesus really is through the Scriptures, through His presence alongside them on the road and eventually through His actions and words when He takes bread and breaks it. Now, He's not reenacting the Last Supper or anything like that. He's doing what they would do at just about every meal I'd sit down to. He would take bread. He would give thanks. He would break it and share it around and take the cup, do the same thing, right? I mean, and, and their response, I love it. Their response is very similar. It mirrors, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you'll be familiar with the story of um, Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where, you know, his response almost, they, they, they mirror, mirror the same kind of thing, where their response is, even though it's night, and people typically didn't travel at night, it was too dangerous, they, they like buck out of there, and they're like straight back to Jerusalem, hightail it those seven miles back to Jerusalem, to go tell everyone, hey, we've seen him, and he vanished right before us, right as we realized who it was, but there's this dawning awareness, this awakening to the truth of who Jesus was, the fullness of the gospel, and they can't help but just go and tell everyone all about it. And so I want to invite you this morning, friends, to join me on the road to Emmaus this morning, because Christ has risen. He is alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But I'm guessing that, that maybe there's some here this morning who are asking similar things like, why does any of that even matter? That maybe like these companions in Luke 24, you're carrying your own decent amount of disappointment, maybe confusion this morning. And that's okay. I want to invite you to journey with me over the next 20 minutes or so as I try and unpack and explain a little bit through the Scriptures of why Jesus had to die, just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus all those years ago. Uh, from the very beginning, starting with the Eden story soon after creation and its foundational description of human death. I mean, we'll have a hard time understanding Jesus' death if we don't actually think about why we ourselves die. You ever thought about this? Why do we die? Why does our hair turn gray, our skin get wrinkly. Why do we eventually all die and, as it says in Genesis 3.19, return to dust? That's where we began our Lenten journey, right? On Ash Wednesday, we were reminded, we were at, that was actually part of the blessing we received on Ash Wednesday all those days ago. Because in Genesis 1, we see right in the very beginning, first chapter of the Bible, God speaks His good creation into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, we see a difference between two key spaces within His created realm, right? There's the world at large, and then there's 
the, the world inside of a unique garden that God plants and sets up. It's called Eden. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The garden, in a lot of ways, is like a home to God. You know, it's, it's an image of heaven on earth where God walks around with His people and shares His endless flourishing love with everyone as His partners. And because God is the infinite source of life itself, the garden is a death-free zone. Death doesn't exist within the garden, right? Outside of the garden, the world still has beauty and goodness and, and life and, and, and flourishing and those things, but it also has expiration dates. Outside of the garden, unlike the garden, living things come to an end and they come out of dust, they return back to dust. They die. Interestingly, God first forms the human outside of the garden, in the realm of dust. Genesis 2.7 tells us that God forms Adam. Adam, which is the Hebrew word for human. From, he forms the human from Adamah, which is the Hebrew word for soil, clay, dust, the things of the earth, right? The substance of the ground. And so after forming the Adam and breathing his spirit of life into it, God then places the human in the garden, the Garden of Eden, puts the human inside. And once the human's inside, God offers a choice. Humans can keep living with him in the garden forever or stop living with him in the garden and return to Adamah, the dust. The right choice seems pretty obvious, pretty straightforward, right? I mean, why, wouldn't, why would anyone choose to leave? You've you got you to wonder, right? But the story tells us in Genesis 12, 15 through 17, and God plants two trees that represent those choices, the choice of life or of death options. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and bad essentially is the way it's talked about, right? And eating from the tree of life means trusting God's wisdom, living forever with Him according to His instruction. However, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad means instead trusting in human wisdom and thereby rejecting God's instruction in life. So if you eat from that tree, God says, you will surely die. So the truth, friends, is that humans probably never intended to leave the garden but they just didn't take God's word seriously. And, trust, and instead, they trusted the wisdom of this snaky deceiver rather than God. And so after making the wrong choice, the human, Adam, is sent out of the garden back to the place where he was originally formed. The ground, the Adamah from which he had been taken is what it says in Genesis 3.19. And so the human must now live outside the garden where people do grow old and wrinkle and gray and, and eventually die on their way back to dust. So the basic message of the Eden story is this. Humans die because we have, from the beginning, rejected God's offer of ultimate life. God's offer requires a surrender of what we might think is life so that we can receive the true life that God wants to give us. Tragically, though, we often decide to choose life as defined by our own wisdom, and instead we embrace our own self-ruin, and often these choices can seem as innocent as eating some tasty, good-looking fruit. But when those choices oppose God's wise instruction, they corrupt life and bring death. Are you with me? Are we tracking okay? So is death our end? Is that the end of the story? Because God not only exiles humans from Eden, but He also sets up 
two cherubims. He stations them with a deadly flaming sword waving back and forth at the entrance to the, at the garden's gate to prevent those humans from re-entering the garden. And, and God, God himself describes this in Genesis 3 as a mercy to the people. Like as a, it's a severe mercy, but it's actually a mercy to the people that will prevent the humans from living forever in that corrupted state that they're now in. You see it? But this creates a paradox in the story, right? We know from Genesis 1 that God's plan is to oversee creation in intimate partnership with humans who are made in God's image. That's His desire. That's what He wants. But how can that happen if the only way to restore humans to eternal life is by passing through those fiery angel swords? By, by dying, right? If this were the end of the story, it would be this ultimate tragedy. We'd all be devastated because it seems like God is cutting ties with humanity altogether but we're only in chapter three of the first book of the bible there's a lot more to come right there's a lot more to come after that it's not the end of the story it's only just begun and it quickly becomes clear that god's not going to abandon his human partners forever ultimately to the grave so since humans can't return to eden on their own without dying god establishes another way which is what we're here celebrating that points forward to an ultimate resolution because when God leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai he begins to give instructions for a mobile tent or tabernacle or tent of meeting where God brings his Eden home to his people that's essentially the way that the, 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 the uh, tabernacle functions. And then later, when they f- finally arrive in the promised land and they get to Jerusalem and they establish the temple as a permanent place, it's the same thing. God graciously does the same thing. And then finally, we see that God will bring His endless life as close as possible by becoming human Himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so each of these moves, God says... Each of these moves throughout the the Old Testament shows that God is not interested in throwing out His partnership with humanity. Rather, God joins us in the dust, showing us that true life is about unity with God and that our death is a temporary tragedy, not the ultimate end of the story. So let's see how those rituals of tabernacle and temple help us better understand the life of Jesus. So as the biblical story unfolds, we see that people begin to adapt and they learn how to survive and manage life outside the garden. Fighting enemies, toiling to make the earth produce fruit, enduring suffering. And God joins them in this space by first helping them create a mobile tent, a tabernacle, which He directs the people to fill with symbols of Eden. It's God's way of saying, you're outside the garden where I live, but I love you. So now I'm going to come back to where you live so you can experience small little tastes of Eden life and eventually come back to the place that I made for you. That's like the heart of God on, you know, going on here. So like the garden, the tabernacle functions like a death-free zone, right? It's, it's, it's when you read through the laws related to the tabernacle's construction and maintenance and ritual worship, it's extensively explained in Exodus you know, second half of Exodus and then pretty much all of Leviticus. You can go and get into all the nitty-gritty there. It, it becomes clear that anything related to death is prohibited from entering the tent. And so instead, you get all these images of pomegranates and olive trees and almonds and all sorts of nutritious and beautiful kind of orchard plants. And so the tabernacle is also embroidered, and this is the key part, on the, um, 
embroidered on the curtains that block entry into its most holy place. On those curtains are embroidered two cherubim. And so if you or I were to stand at the entrance to the tabernacle and look in, you'd see those curtains with the cherubim emblazoned and embroidered on them. And in the center, right in front of them, was the altar with the fire where sacrifices were made. So you get the fire, like the fiery sword between them. It's intentional imagery intended to symbolize the entrance back into Eden. Your cherubim with the flaming sword, you see it? Like this was intentional imagery that that God was setting up. And and, and it's all designed to communicate that entering this space where God dwells is like re-entering Eden, going back in. But remember the paradox. I mean, the Eden story made it clear that anyone who would re-enter the life of Eden would die by that fiery angel sword. So how can people rejoin God's presence if they're dead? And if they're dead, how can they do anything at all? And this is where we get a glimpse of this merciful mystery that's explored in great detail throughout Leviticus 16 and 17, where God says that He'll accept the the life of a blameless representative that will surrender its life for, on behalf of, another. And so, in that sacrificial ritual, a spotless lamb, a spotless animal offers its life as a representative for the life of a less than spotless human who cannot return to God without dying. The animal dies right outside the, the, the holy tent space, allowing the human priest to then carry its lifeblood and pass through that dangerous boundary of cherubim and flaming sword into that symbolic Eden. And there, the life of the blameless animal can appeal to God's mercy on behalf of, for the sake of another, and God will respond accordingly. And so the animal dies for the human, on behalf of the human, and in place of the human, allowing the person to live through that death and reunite with God. It's crucial to understand that that the people don't come to God just hoping that God might show mercy because of the sacrifice, but we've got to realize, no, God set this all up. This was God's design. He intended it. He established it. He wrote about it. He said, do this. In in Leviticus 17, 11, he says, I have given the lifeblood to you on the altar. And so when people give these animals' lives to God, they're watching God giving the animal to God, who then accepts it. And so through all these instructions about animal offerings, and there's a lot of that in the Old Testament, right? God is showing people how real death happens as a result of their choices that, opposes God, that oppose God's will. And so they experience the tangible and bloody consequences as they witness those sacrifices taking place. But they also see how God wants to preserve human life through death. A representative goes through the flames on behalf of another, surrendering and preserving life. It's like God has engineered a kind of death that does not ultimately destroy the human. It's a death that overcomes death. You see it? And so then later in the story, when the Israelites make it to the promised land and they establish themselves in Jerusalem and the the same basic operation continues in the temple in Jerusalem and there the Holy of Holies is still guarded by a veil that bears those embroidered images of the two cherubim uh, from Eden's gate. And then the altar is in the center, it still occupies that central location. And so that, that, that flaming sword imagery is 
still present, right? First in the garden, then in the tabernacle, and here in the temple. No one can pass through the cherubim's blockade and into the place of God's presence because, like the first humans, we have all been corrupted by death, by choosing to trust our own wisdom more than God's. And so the jewel cherubim symbol reminds us that we're all outside of the garden, disconnected from God, and returning to the adama, the dust. But the symbol of animal sacrifice for entry into his garden-like dwelling suggests that even death cannot overthrow or undo God's will to reconnect with humanity and restore endless life for humanity. He loves us far too much for that. He won't abandon us. And so centuries filled with ritual sacrifices come and they go and they pass by. And while the offerings and religious observances teach people and provide guidance, they also fall short ultimately of changing the reality or of ultimately solving the problem. People keep experiencing wars and diseases and graveyards. And the reality of life outside the garden weighs heavy and creates a deep longing a hopeful expectation that at some point God will bring a total end to corruption and death, which is what Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus were expressing in their own disappointment and confusion, right? So this brings us to Jesus dying on the cross. Why did, why did Jesus die? The opening lines in John's gospel give us this cosmic plot twist in a sense right the infinite creator god of the cosmos who is unchangeable and unfathomable and undefeatable humbly joins us in our own corrupted and dying state outside of the garden we're told that god tabernacles or sets up his presence his residence among us by becoming human and joining us outside of eden that's what it says in john chapter 1 verse 14 where it says i think we got this on the slide don't we the the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase there literally can be translated as tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And by choosing to be with us, God is also choosing to experience death. In that sense, Jesus dies because we die. And so the Hebrew Bible's early backstory in the first chapters of Genesis shows us that reuniting with God and returning to endless garden life requires real death. Remember those symbols of the cherubim, the flaming sword, right? And remember that that, that deadly re-entry into the garden is all about surrendering our own definitions of good and bad that lead us to death. Through the animal offerings of the tabernacle and temple rituals, God tells His people that He intends to reunite with them and to preserve their lives through death. And so now God becomes a true human and experiences that same death. He lives through it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus was made to be sin for us, even though He knew no sin. Jesus takes us on the pain and death of corrupted flesh shared by all humanity, even though he never knows or chooses sin. We learn about the meaning of the cross here. This is God laying down his own human life with love for us on our behalf, for our good. And so in Christ, God meets us outside of the garden 
and through death he passes the lethal cherubim sword boundary that guards the way back in. And during Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem, right when he dies, you remember it? The temple's cherubim embroidered veil that was guarding the way into the Holy of Holies gets ripped and torn from top to bottom. Access to God's presence is now fully restored. And in that sense, Jesus dies to open the way for humanity to re-enter and experience the presence of God here and now again in fullness. And when Jesus is raised back to life as the same human, He exposes this well-hidden secret about death. We have, in our own enlightened, rationalized, reasonable minds, assumed that death marks the ultimate end of human life. But Jesus' resurrection says otherwise. It says, no, the resurrection of Jesus means that we are His real brothers and sisters and will join Him in resurrection life one day. His death and resurrection together shout, the lifeless end you fear is not real it's not let love for god's ongoing way of life replace your fear of death fear of death is just another one of those snaky little deceiving lies that tricks us into hoarding our resources rather than giving generously to others to fear of death deceives us into fighting with friends and neighbors and colleagues and making swords and killing our enemies and We're all living outside of the garden and the fear-filled instinct to protect ourselves at all costs is woven into our DNA. It's inescapable. And unless a true human could show us that death is temporary and not ultimate, fortunately Jesus does because that's what Jesus shows us. And if we're paying attention to Him, then His way of love will slowly but surely drive out all fear of death. And instead, we can start loving and forgiving instead of hating and judging. We can start to bless and not curse. We can start to hammer our violent swords into fruitful garden tools, is the way Isaiah talks about it. Jesus shows us that death is brutally tragic, but it's not the end. Our lives strengthen and illuminate when we spend them freely learning His ongoing, loving, garden-style ways of living together with others. That's what this whole series has been about through Lent. Cruciformity. The way of following Jesus. It has a shape to it. Hopefully you've kind of picked up on it. It goes like this. It goes down. When we embrace and follow the way of Jesus, we follow Him down through all the suffering, through death, and then we rise on the other side with Him. It's the shape of baptism, right? It's the way of being, and so that's why we've talked about our identities and our vocations and our work and our our discipleship and our following of Jesus follows that cruciform way. It is the way to life. It is the way to live in and experience and know the presence of God here and now as a lived reality, as a tangible presence in our world today. That if we will die to our own human wisdom and knowledge of good and bad and instead choose to follow the way of Jesus and accept His way, then we'll experience resurrected life. And so if we journey back to these travelers on the road to Emmaus, how do we make sense of all that's happened in and around Jerusalem? How do, why did Jesus have to die? And how do we make sense of this confusing report of the empty tomb? 
Luke, the gospel writer, basically has invited all of us in this story to just join him and accompany him on this journey of faith. Faith that will take us through the anxiety and sorrow and fear to meet the Jesus who has accomplished his Father's work and longs to share the secret of it and experience the gift of his own real presence with us, his followers. There's so many other things, thoughts and, and expressions and questions about Jesus dying on the cross that we could that we could delve into and those things we could explore those forever but 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 we can remember in amidst of all of those other different options that Jesus dies for us in 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 lots of different ways and there's you know all those things we could express but the many interwoven nuanced and beautiful explanations if we were to track back through the biblical narrative the one that rises to the top over and over and over again I think is that and we can remember it not just from the Hebrew backstory but from Jesus' story in the New Testament, that Jesus is compelled to die for us, ultimately, because of His undying love. That's it. His undying love. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is revealed most fully in the death of Jesus. And when God Himself enters our world of death and dust, so that in Him, we can continue living through death and return to endless, good life with God. All of this and more is what Paul means when he says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. All of this and more is what I think Cleopas means when he said, were not our hearts burning within us as He explained the Scriptures to us? Right? Jesus died for us because He loves us. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. We, of all people, should be tremendously reassured. Hopeful, confident in hope, you know? Confident in hope. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be anxious. And so... We started to see glimpses of it. You know, Zaya mentioned earlier the crew out at Easter camp and, um, and, and great things are happening out there. You know, we got to, Jamie and, uh, and Iris and I got to visit last night, spend some time with, with our crew out there and, and it, was, it was awesome to be there um, and to witness some of what God is doing. Yes, there's been, God's been meeting people in real ways, tangible presence. They're experiencing the presence of Jesus. There's been for, for a number of these young people who... who don't come from church backgrounds at all. They're experiencing that presence of Jesus walking alongside them. I think over a few days, they're, they're experiencing that dawning realization, that awakening more and more to who Jesus is. People experience that sense of inner healing, of God meeting them in their emotional woundedness and, and healing them on the inside. Physical healings have been showing up. Like there's a genuine work of God showing up. This is this is what it means to enter into and experience resurrected life and presence is, that, you know, that we get that, that, that access, you know, back into the garden. This is, this, is, this is what we talk about when we talk about being the people of God and welcoming His kingdom here now on earth. This is the same kind of thing that we pray for and believe for. We've had tastes of it here in our ga worship gatherings over the last couple of weeks where a number of you have received those dawning awareness maybe it's been more profound than that maybe it's been 
a direct word that just revealed exactly what you needed in that moment. And in God's kindness, He gave it. And He met you right where you're at. Heaven on earth. Healings. Deliverance. You know, being set free. Like this is, this is the stuff of the kingdom. This is the stuff of the garden, right? We don't need to live outside of the garden anymore. Because of Jesus, we're welcomed back in. We can experience His life, His resurrection hope here and now. And that's on offer to anyone who will, like, like we saw, put down our own wisdom and our own beliefs around good and bad and instead take up Jesus' truth, His wisdom, His way, the cruciform way. And so that's, uh, that, that's, that's the encouragement to each of us this morning, that, that you might do that. And so I want to pray for us and the team will come and we'll spend some time just um, uh, responding to God in praise and thanksgiving this morning. But let's pray before we, before we do. Come Holy Spirit, we welcome you here in this time and space. Come and meet with us. Lord, we thank you that it's always your heart's desire to show your love to us. To make yourself known. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, come and meet us now. Minister among us, we pray. Lord, I want to pray specifically this morning for those who maybe carry their own feelings of disappointment, and confusion in the faith journey. And that maybe, maybe some of that disappointment and that confusion is welling up in, in, in uh, feelings of fear and anxiety around the future, around what it means. And so, Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you apply resurrection hope and life deep in the souls of those who are feeling disappointed, confused. Jesus, resurrection life, resurrection hope. Pray it into being. Lord, we lay down our own wisdom, our own understandings, our own assumptions around good and bad, and our own, even, even our misguided expectations. We lay those down. We surrender them to you. And we take up yours. God, give us your wisdom. Reset our expectations. And may those expectations be filled with hope and life, Jesus, as only you make possible. Lord, more than anything, we want to know your resurrection power alive inside us. So awaken that now, I pray. Bring it alive inside us. The same power that rose Christ from the grave, may it well up inside each of us even now. Lord, may that strength of that presence inside of us, Lord, assure us in faith. Give us that strong sense of 
confident hope, hope in you, that we don't need to be afraid, we don't need to be anxious, and so we, we let those things go. Lord, would you release us to follow you fully, even when it means going down, going the cruciform way, even when it means facing suffering, even when it means facing hardship, even when it means the threat of death to ourselves and death to our own ways. Lord, we're, we're willing. Will you strengthen us and make, make us able to endure and proceed, proceed on? And Lord, bring us out the other side, we pray, in glorious hope, in resurrection, hope and glory and, and life. Lord, in all of that, we pray that you would be so honored, that you would be pleased, that you would receive such great glory and honor, Jesus, that you would, you would bear such striking witness to your power and might, your majesty showing up through our lives, Lord, that those around us are kind of captivated by it, that it would be an expression of your love and your goodness to those around us, that we go, man, what is up with this person? They're not afraid. They're not anxious. They're not troubled. They're not worried. Or when they are, they seem to have this deep-rooted assurance, this confident hope. Lord, I pray that be true of each and every one of us in Jesus' name, not because of ourselves, but because of who you are in us. So, Lord, rise up inside of us, we pray. Come on, let's stand to our feet, will you? And, um, and let's just declare the good news of Easter Sunday together. Let's speak this into our souls, into our spirits as we kind of respond together in the way the church has for centuries, friends. He is risen. He is risen. Come on, I didn't hear you. He is risen. Come on, you can do better. Christ is risen. Amen.